Ladies, if you have a man in your life who is struggling with all the symptoms of Hashimoto's, fatigue, difficulty losing weight, hair loss, holding on to that extra 20 pounds that feels like puffy water weight, this episode is for you. I have on today Dr. Jade Tita. Wow, what an extraordinary human being as well as super knowledgeable. He holds a naturopathic degree from Bastyr University as well as an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. He has spent 20 years in the natural health, fitness, and fat loss industry, having worked as a physician, personal trainer, wellness consultant, and nutrition coach. He's a best-selling author of numerous books, including Next Level Metabolism, Human 365, and Metabolic Effect Diet, which was ranked by Time Magazine as one of the top diet books in 2010. He also has a podcast called Next Level Human, which is also amazing. And he has a website, Dr. J. Tita, which offers educational courses in metabolism, hormone imbalances, mindfulness, relationships. And, you know, this episode isn't just for the men who might have Hashimoto's. We also talk about what is secreted, myokines, which is kind of this up and coming science, when we contract a muscle and how those affect our hormones and our immune system, as well as an up and coming supplement, urolithin A, which helps with mitochondrial health and mitochondrial autophagy. So we'll dive in, but for the women who are interested in Thyroid Strong, the doors open May 22nd today, and we have some amazing bonuses with this run to Thyroid Strong. We have four different guest experts coming on to share their knowledge on Hashimoto's and menopause, how to execute on a protein-forward elimination diet with Hashimoto's how to heal your gut from a prebiotic, not probiotic, a prebiotic approach with Hashimoto's and so much more. I'm also adding some personal bonuses of how to heal your knees with Hashimoto's, a two hour workshop from a supplement as well as movement perspective. And then one other bonus, a stealthy gut infection root cause workshop. So lots of bonuses this round of Thyroid Strong. Doors open today, May 22nd. They close this Thursday, four days. May 25th. So if you want to join, go to dremilykybird.com slash six weeks, six week. If you are an intermediate, have lifted a weight before, not scared of weights, you don't call the kettlebell the kettlebell. If you're more of a beginner, you've only walked or done yoga or Pilates, you're going to go to dremilykybird.com forward slash 12 week. That is more of my slower progression of body weight, lighter weight, and then integrating weights. All right, ladies, let's dive into this episode with Dr. Jade Tita. Dr. Jade Tita, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Super excited to have you here. I'm really happy to be here, and it's uh, fun to have another conversation since we just got to speak last week, so I'm excited about this conversation. Typically, women reach out to me, and they express that they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, and sometimes men reach out as well. And I wanted to bring you on because I know you've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And I was curious, is there a difference when treating Hashimoto's in men versus women? It's a really good question. Um, As you as most of your listeners know, I'm sure from being educated by you, it's primarily a female condition, as is most autoimmune conditions. They seem to impact uh, women more. We're not exactly clear on why that is, but we do think estrogen plays a role. And certainly with the thyroid gland, estrogen plays a role because it does adjust specifically thyroid binding globulin. And so any kind of estrogen in the body 
whether it is uh, from hormone replacement therapy or just a woman's own estrogen is going to impact thyroid function because of that. Now, in men, obviously, the estrogen component is there. It's not that we don't have uh, estrogen. Um, it's just that it's much, much less. And so my clinical experience is mostly with women, but the few men I have worked with, including myself, because I do have this condition, is that what I would say is it's a far more stable disease in men. And this would make sense from the perspective of fluctuating estrogen levels, especially in younger women as they fluctuate with the menstrual cycle. And of course, as women, you know, begin to age, perimenopause, menopause and estrogen levels begin to fall, that also can uh, play a role. So we're not exactly sure what is going on. Uh, you may have more information on this than I do, Emily, but um, we're not exactly sure what's going on, why it's perhaps more of an issue in women. There's lots of theories about that. But I would say that in my uh, little bit of uh, I have a ton, ton, like thousands of women, you know, that I've treated for Hashimoto's. Men, it's probably less than 100. Uh, that's, that's about uh, my uh, experience with that. And I have found that men are a little bit easier to work with in that regard because uh, with women, what ends up happening is you'll think you have it under control, then you see these antibodies, you know, spike back up. And that can happen. A lot of people, you know, in medicine, they talk about this idea that, oh, things can wax and wane and thyroid, you and I know that's because we can't account for the lifestyle factors that are impacting uh, these, these autoantibodies. Um, and sometimes you'll even see that the, the antibodies don't necessarily correlate with severity of symptoms and disease. Um, and that's another thing that makes it a little bit more confusing uh, with women, I think. But with, when it comes to men, it's a little easier from my perspective, and you know, other clinicians who have more experience with men may differ on this, but it just seems to be a more cut and dry situation where the uh, antibodies don't fluctuate as much. Um, the disease is a little bit more stable and predictable. And I just assume that is coming from the estrogen effect, but that is an unsatisfactory answer, right? The, the real answer, I don't really know uh, why it seems clinically women seem to suffer more and uh, seem to have more volatile disease trajectory. But uh, that's my theory. Do you find that the lab values when you're looking at, let's say, a full thyroid panel are similar for women and men when you're looking at like, okay, this is conventional range. Maybe this is a little more optimal range. Are you using mm -hmm. the kind of same ranges for a male and a female? Yes. And I, again, it seems, and again, this is just severity of disease, I'm sure. I mean, normally with men, you'll see like, for example, you might see TBG or TPO. Um, you, you see, you might see TBG and not TPO. With women, it's, and you see lower numbers in general. Of course, again, you have to be very careful with this clinically because the, the number of treatments is much, much less. You know, So of course, if you have thousands of women you've treated, you're going to see much more severe cases than men. But um, yes, to me, I think it's you know, um, very similar. I would just say that for men, the disease seems to be more mild in severity of symptoms, at least the ones I've treated, and less severe in terms of uh, objective lab uh, markers as well. And so um, one of the things I will say about this, though, is women, this is just across the board. Like, you know, anyone who knows my work knows I've worked mostly with women. That makes sense being a naturopathic physician and a functional medicine practitioner. Almost all of the clients are women. Uh, men don't typically come 
uh, to see uh, people like me, unless their uh, significant other, you know, or their partner, female partner, you know, tells them to go. Um, so from my perspective, it it just makes sense that, you know, you're going to see less men and I'm going to have less, uh, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, experience with that. But because of that, women come and they're much more highly motivated. Women are much more likely to make the changes. They're much more likely to be uh, interested. They're much more likely to um, be very proactive, whereas men really are the types that are just like, I don't care. Just give me the armor. Give me the Synthroid. You know, um, it's really about get me feeling a little bit better. And they're not normally as proactive with women. Women usually are like, hey, what can I do? Uh, you know, what can I do to you know, cure this. Like, I know my doctor said this, but I want to do more. And men are just kind of like, look, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling shitty. Let me, let me get back to, you know, feeling better. And so it is a different sort of outcome. So men aren't, you know, normally as proactive about changing their lifestyles as women. And so, uh, I can say this, most of the men I've treated, uh, it's different, you know, they, they may not have as bad of a case, but I've seen way more women in, uh, this would be percent wise, obviously who have recovered and are, are, free of symptoms and have no more, you know, markers of disease than I have with men. And I just think that's because women are much more uh, proactive uh, than men in this regard across the board, you know, when, when they're taking care of their health. Can you share how you were diagnosed? Mm -hmm. I diagnosed myself, actually. Uh, this of course. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, a, this is horrible. So I, I, I'm sorry to say this, this is not what you want to do, but I have always been my own doctor, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. Like we learned this in medical school. And so uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Emily's probably like cringing right now on the inside and all of you, but it's just a big no-no. You don't do that. But this was, um, let's see, my third year at naturopathic medical school, I think I had just entered the clinic. And um, yeah, I, uh, I had always been a very lean guy. Um, in fact, now when I look at myself, I, had, I was very lean, 10% to 6% body fat, very muscular at 200 pounds to 200, 210 pounds, maybe. And honestly, within a period of about three months, I gained probably close to 30 pounds. Um, and maybe it was maybe it was, you know, three to six months, but I gained a lot of weight really quickly. And what's funny about that is I was so busy just doing what I'm doing. It uh, my brother is the one because we were in school together and I had I was doing a lot of soy protein at the time. I was a vegetarian mainly at the time. Uh, and I was also working my ass off, but I was doing lots and lots of soy protein. And I was going to Jamba Juice a lot. This is a funny story. So I don't, and, and my brother looked at me one day and he goes, where are you going to Jumbo Juice? And I was like, Jumbo Juice? What do you mean? He goes, bro, you put on some weight, man. You need to like stop with the soy protein. And, and so I thought about that. My brother's very honest and you know, we tease each other a lot. And then I was like, I also feel horrible. Uh, I was, I'll give you guys an idea because I think this will be educational for everyone. This, this is what my life was like for, um, nine to 18 months prior to this diagnosis. And I do think, uh, and Emily, you can jump in on this and see if you see this too. I do think this, usually when you're dealing with this particular condition or any audio, autoimmune condition or any sort of chronic fatigue type of situation, you look for this history. But here's what it was for me. I went full-time to medical school. Anyone who's done that, um, that's a full-time job. I had to work because I was not uh, wealthy and you know the loans were not going to cover it. So what I did was I finagled my way into a situation where I could spend all week doing medical school and not having to work. And then on the weekends, I bartended. So I would go in, 
uh, at, uh, if I was the early bartender, I'd go in at 9 p.m. If I was late bartender, 11 p.m., I'd work till 3 or 4 a.m. I then talked to the people I was personal training with and convinced them to give me a 12-hour shift on a Saturday morning. And so what I would do is I would go 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday personal training, which meant I had sometimes three or two hours of sleep. And I would get up, and I remember, because the bar I worked at was a very popular dance club, and I remember uh, sleeping those two hours, and it felt like I was just, in, I just hearing the EDM in my head, like, doom, doom, doom. And I'd wake <laughs> up, and then I would work a 12-hour shift. And, and what was interesting about this is this particular workout was 20-minute workouts. So you can think about, I was getting it two to three people an hour coming in without breaks. And I would just pray for a break, just a no-show so I could just sit and you know rest a little bit. And then I went back to the bar Saturday night and did another shift and I slept all day Sunday. And then I went back to medical school uh, uh, Monday through Friday. And within about, I would say six months of that, I probably started putting on weight. And within about nine months to a year of that, I was feeling absolutely horrible. Now I was also in Seattle. I was pale. I wasn't getting any vitamin D. There's just a whole, I was stressed out, you know. And next thing I know, I go down to the lab and I was like, I feel horrible. And I'll never forget this because my numbers, my TSH was 11 and my vitamin D, D as in David, was also 11. I'll never forget that. I was like 11 and 11. And then, of course, what I did was I was like, all right, now I need to run a full thyroid panel. And so when I ran my thyroid panel, my antibodies were not uh, that high, but they were pretty high, right? So they were in the hundreds, um, not thousands like you sometimes see, um, which isn't bad. Uh, and both uh, TPO and TPG were elevated, you know? So I was like, all right, I, uh, I need to do something, um, you know, here. And so actually one of the first moves I made was getting off that vegetarian diet, scaling back my, um, my bartending a little bit. So I took one, one day off, like what I, and, and by the way, I couldn't take all the days off. So I, I basically was like, all right, I'm going to have two days a, a month where I'm not doing this, you know, where I'm only working one shift. And, um, honestly, Emily, you know, the story here, my body am, has never been the same. I, you know, just to look at myself, I'm, you know, puffy, you know, hold a lot of water. I put on fat really easily. I put on muscle easily too, still, but I just have now have a, a very puffy sort of look. And if I'm not ca careful, I get extremely fatigued and things like that. Now I have, I am on thyroid medications and I have taken myself off before and been, you know, for years, you know, you know cause you know, this was close to 20 years ago now that I was in medical school. Um, and there's been years where I have not been on thyroid meds. Uh, I am one of these people, I'm Italian. I love to eat. I love, you know, so some of these things, you know, I will certainly can regress back. And it, it happens as soon as I start doing a lot of alcohol, overtraining, um, I love wine, things like that, and a lot of pastas and, you know, the, the typical Italian sort of way of doing things. And I'm right back uh, in the mix. And I've just chosen to stay on my thyroid meds because I do work hard and I like to function good and I like to work out and I just feel better and function uh, better on it. So that that's my story. But I, I will say for people listening to this, uh, oftentimes it really is the hardest part for me was realizing that a vegetarian diet uh, and all that soy and all that kind of stuff probably was not helping me. And the other thing was, uh, you know, realizing that I was going to have to figure out something to do. And eventually I just took out more loans, student loans, you know, um, and to take care of my health. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a disaster. And it was a lot of different factors, I think, factoring into that. Can you share how your training changed over mm -hmm. the years, maybe after your diagnosis? 
Yeah, well, you know, interestingly enough, so I, uh, a lot of people will be familiar with this, right? Where we get a diagnosis, we're highly motivated to fix it. Um, once I got out of medical school, I was highly motivated to fix it. And I got in fantastic shape again and like was off my thyroid meds for a few years. Then, of course, I started a business. Uh, Metabolic Effect was that business. If anyone knows way back in the day, I sold that business. But starting a business as an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, I got married and, um, you know, me and Jill, my wife at the time, were working so hard and like, you know, just everything was just crazy. And I started to put all that weight back on again. And, um, like a lot, you know, of weight, like again, you know, 30 pounds in a very short amount of time. And I still am, I still weigh anywhere from 220 to 225. And I can go up as high as 240 if I'm not careful from a guy who was 200 his whole life, you know? Um, so yeah, so then it, it basically came back. And so again, I had to figure it out again and go, okay. And, and so what, what did I do different when I was in those good shape? What I was doing is Funnily enough, I wasn't training as much. The times where I got in trouble is when I started overtraining because I love training. I started overtraining and overworking. And I tend to be that way as an entrepreneurial I, I, you know, person. I, I, I tend to get a lot of drive and I tend to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it and I'm going to kill it in the gym. And I'm going to, and that just doesn't work for me. So my training changed to basically lots of walking, which if you had told me I was going to be a walker, you know, back in the day, I would have been like, shut up. Are you serious? Like what's walking doing? <laughs> Walking was everything and also my resistance training stuff and, you know, my metabolic conditioning workouts and my high intensity interval workouts and all that kind of stuff. I pare down to about three times per week, which kills me because I love it. Um, and, you know, but it's mainly when I start feeling this, I mainly move scale all my training back, lots more walking, lots more stress reducing. I, you know, I always uh, now essentially have to have a sauna, a sauna uh, and cold plunge, which just does wonders for me. And I found that it's very effective for people with thyroid uh, issues. And I feel like uh, it's, it's basically one of these things where you really have to start to mitigate stress. And you have to realize that the stress that you, you don't realize that it's stress from training and dieting. And so the times where I was most overweight uh, and the times where I was most struggling were the times where I was trying to eat the cleanest and train the hardest. And it's just been a, a tough lesson to learn. And sometimes I still don't learn that lesson just because it's so ingrained in our head the other way around. So now I do a lot more yoga. I do a lot more walking. I do a lot more sauna and stress reducing techniques. And I really am careful uh, in the gym uh, for sure. I love to talk about stress and a little bit deeper. And I know you talk about this. Sometimes I think with an autoimmune condition, there's a very strong message from the medical community of like, de-stress, don't stress, don't even touch stress, right? And to shy away from it. And obviously stress is our motivator. And, you know, you have found ways to manage the stress, but how can we kind of use stress to our advantage to keep us, you know, moving through the world, whether it's building a business or training hard without that crash and burn? Is it just simply maybe dialing back the workouts and implementing some stress management tools? I'd love mm. to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's funny that you say use stress, which I oftentimes say too. And there's a term in medicine called you stress, which is EU stress, which is yeah. good stress. So you do need to use stress. Stress is a Goldilocks zone, right? So we need enough to become resilient. Too much is a problem. And so we have to always look in this Goldilocks zone. And the first thing to do is to realize and to know when your metabolism is under stress. Because we oftentimes think that if our mind and mental emotional system is under stress, 
then that that means we're under stress. And if our mind and mental, emotional, you know, sort of feelings are not, then we're not under stress. And that is not true. Uh, one of the uh, um, major ways I explain this, if you think of a new mother, maybe her whole lifelong dream was to have children. Um, she essentially carries this baby for nine months. You know, that baby is, you know, I hate this term, but robbing her of nutrients and things like that. It, it's pretty much. You know, yeah, right. And yeah. then. And then, of course, this has never happened to me, but you can maybe speak to this, Emily, you know, but it's it's one of these things where, OK, and then you have the child. Your whole life goes from especially if it's your first kid, your whole life goes from one way of living to an entirely different way of living that you thought you knew what it was going to be like. But you have no freaking idea. Right. I've talked to enough women to, to know this. And that becomes, you know, a, a really big issue. And that is a huge stress, sleepless nights, all of this. And so she might be the happiest person in the world, so happy with her new baby. And she is more metabolically stressed than she's ever been in her life. And that's how you have to look at stress. And so the first thing about stress is to know that it's not just mental, emotional. In fact, to the metabolism, it's a lot more than that. I oftentimes teach people, you need to know when your metabolism is under stress, it will tell you. Think about it like this. Um, the body is programmed for a starvation response because that's how we evolved. And so whenever you're under stress, it's going to default to a lot of those starvation responses. So what are those going to be? Increased hunger, increased cravings. Energy will be unpredictable and unstable and so will move. Why? Because there's going to be times where the brain's like, get out in the cold snow, climb out from under the cave and go find food. There's going to be other times where it's like, we need to conserve energy because you haven't had any food. Right. So mood and energy start to become unpredictable and unstable. Sleep starts to become a little bit fragmented and uh, changing as well. So sleep, hunger, mood, energy and cravings start to go out of check. This is a, a acronym I use. Many people know, who follow me know it's a silly word, but it, it's memorable. Schmeck, S-H-M-E-C, right? S-H-M-E-C, Schmeck. If your Schmeck is out of check, you're under stress. Your metabolism is under stress. And this is the first piece of managing and mitigating stress is to know, okay, now I'm under stress. So now I know I'm overdoing something, right? Maybe I'm overeating, maybe I'm undereating. Both of those are overdoing something, by the way, right? Too little food or too much food is a stress. Too little exercise or too much exercise is a stress. We don't understand this usually, uh, all of us, we tend to get this wrong. And so first you need to know, schmeck out of check means I'm under stress. And number two, what do I do to, to mitigate this? Well, it's a lot of what you said, Emily. It's basically, all right, now I got to figure out what are the things that I can do to take the edge off, to, to de-stress myself and or to make myself more resilient. So let's talk about some of the things to, to de-stress. Um, Anything that puts you sort of in that woo saw or ah state, like relax, <laughs> right? It's it's things like um, sleep, naps. It's things like uh, meditation, massage. It's things like physical affection, and that includes things that you know. I know it's we don't always like to talk about this stuff, but like sex and orgasm, those things are very uh, stress reducing. Time with pets, as long as they're not peeing and pooping everywhere. Um, time with loved ones, you know, talking, connection, that kind of thing, spa time, spa therapies, facials, manicures, pedicures, all this kind of stuff is really useful. However, you don't want to just go, I'm just going to now relax for the rest of my life. And this is where, you know, I really uh, loved learning about your work, Emily, because it's about like, okay, now we do have to create some resilience and you're going to create that resilience through your training. And you want to do that training, in my mind, in a way that is not overtaxing the system. So a lot of these metabolic conditioning workouts, high-intensity interval workouts and things like this, they might be great, 
but they can easily be overdone. Same thing with very long duration stuff. So anything that's too high intensity and very, very long in duration can be a problem. What you want is either very short and intense or, you know, still short, but, you know, sort of moderate. And I really like the approach of just traditional weight training, which you do a lot with kettlebells, right? And, uh, you know, I know you do a lot with, you know, long rest between sets, not going too fast, allowing the nervous system, the parasympathetic sympathetic system to be stimulated, the sympathetic system, and then the parasympathetic system to come in and relax. And this is good practice. This is also why I love a contrast hydrotherapy for people with thyroid issues. The the hot and the cold each have an impact on thyroid and each have an impact on first you get sympathetic when you get in the cold, right? But if you stay in the cold long enough, you move into a parasympathetic state. When you first go into the warm, you get parasympathetic and then it goes sympathetic. And so it's very interesting, this sort of back and forth dynamic of, of training the nervous system. And you can do that with hot and cold therapy. You can do that with pushing and resting in workouts. These are the best ways to do it. And it builds resilience. And this is to me how you do this. One, rest and recovery stuff. Two, know how to train like, like you teach, Emily. Like, you know, this way of like a, a way of training that's, that balances sympathetic or sympathetic responses. And then other activities that are what I would call lifestyle adaptogens, exposure to cold, exposure to heat. These things are lifestyle adaptogens. And then the final thing here would be there we do have in the natural medicine world, the conventional medicine world really doesn't have this, but we do have adaptogens that are very, very, um, uh, very, very effective here. And one of the ones it's controversial, but it would be the one that, you know, you don't always go uh, across the board. You know, you have to look at each individual, but ashwagandha is one probably all of you have heard of. I have used that pretty much in every thyroid autoimmune condition there is, despite the fact that people get upset and think it's a nightshade. And it is a nightshade. It just does not seem, I have never seen it have a negative effect on uh, anyone other than every once in a while it has a paradoxical effect on a few people, which means it usually is very relaxing, but sometimes it can become overstimulating in some people. But uh, it, to me, it's, a, it's so effective in my clinical experience. I have no qualms about saying ashwagandha is something uh, that people should be using. I'd be curious if you differ with me on that. And there's others like rhodiola and others, but I have thousands and thousands of data points on that particular uh, adaptogen as it pertains to thyroid and adrenal stuff. I recommend ashwagandha all the time. I know people get pushed back of like, well, it's not AIP. It's like, okay, well then don't use it during the elimination phase. And you know, you can reintroduction phase if you really Yeah, in it. my opinion is, you know, I, I do I do that and still use it in in, you know, with uh allergy elimination programs. Yeah. You use heart rate variability in your training, yes? I absolutely do. And I use heart rate recovery. Uh, you and I talked about this. Heart rate recovery is a really good way, especially in the acute phases when you're exhausted and you're just like, look, we I know what it's like. Emily knows what it's like. You all listening probably know what it's like. There are just times when you are just like, I don't even want to climb out of bed. I'm just so tired. It hurts. And the way that I did that with myself, and I've done this again thousands of times with uh, patients, is you use heart rate recovery. During the workout, you use heart rate variability as a measure to see how well you're doing overall. But heart rate recovery, your, your body, your heart rate should recover 20 beats per minute after an intense bout of exercise. And what happens is it's an indication of how well you're sympathetic. You're stimulating yourself sympathetic. Can your heart rate get up, number one? And number two, can it fall fast? So can it get up sympathetic? Can it fall fast parasympathetic, right? 
when you are overtaxing yourself in a workout, what will happen is your heart rate will go up and stay up and not come down fast enough. And so what I would normally do is I would tell people, listen, do your bout of resistance training, then wait two to three minutes and check your heart rate. Did it drop at least 20 beats? If it has not, then the workout's done for you. You did, you know, I don't care where you are in the workout, the workout's done. Um, and this tends to be uh, a way that allows people to slowly get into the workouts. Sometimes I'll just go rest much longer. But normally, if their heart rate is elevated and it's not coming down at 20 beats after two to three minutes, that's overstressing to the system. So that's the heart rate recovery. And I don't normally use this except with people with chronic fatigue, uh, autoimmune stuff that are just really fatigued. And I know we need to get them resilient and they still need to be moving and training. Heart rate variability is something you can look at day to day. And honestly, I really like if you've ever heard of R rings, whoops, Apple watches, they're all measuring this stuff now. The better measurement to actually have, because heart rate variability is a tricky measure to look at by itself. You need to have lots of data points before you can say what's really going on because we're all very different. It's like a fingerprint. However, when you look at readiness scores that take into account things like how often you train the day before, what's your sleep been like, what has your recovery been like, and heart rate variability. Like I wear an R ring, so they do this really well. They have a readiness score. I know Whoop has one as well. I think Apple Watch. Lots of them have them. And I actually think that score is better because it incorporates a lot of other variables from temperature to uh, resting heart rate to uh, lowest sleeping heart rate to heart rate variability to training, uh, you know, um, the, the days prior. So heart rate variability, yes, but I think readiness scores are even better because it takes out some of the guesswork about what's going on with my HRV. And by the way, if you do want to use heart rate variability, the way to look at this is you want to look at averages, right? So, and don't compare yours to anyone else. I know people who have heart rate variabilities in the thirties who just crush life and people are like, how's your heart rate variability low? Because it's unique to them. And you look at that and you say, okay, well, let's say my heart rate variability stays between, you know, 30 and 40 uh, most of the time when I'm feeling really good and training. That's your trend. Now, if it drops below 30, that's a problem. If it goes above 40, that's a problem. Again, it's the Goldilocks zone here. You don't want it too parasympathetic. You don't want it too sympathetic. You want it sort of living in that zone. Now, if it's slowly trending up, that's very positive, but that will happen over, over weeks. So over weeks and months, really. But that's how I use both of those. And it's, I think they're incredibly important in this, um, in this population, for sure. I love those nuances of the recovery versus the variability. We talk a lot about how muscle is the largest endocrine organ in the body because muscle secretes myokines. Mm. For people who've never heard of myokines, can you explain what they are and why they are important for hormonal health as well as our immune system? Yeah. Well, so here's the interesting thing. Think about the thyroid. We're all very familiar with the way the thyroid secretes its thyroid hormones, right? T3 and T4. Um, so the muscles also release signaling molecules. They're not hormones, uh, but we, we lump them all into the, you know, a lot of people are just calling them all hormones now. So uh, the fat cells release hormones. They're adipokines. The immune system releases hormones. They're cytokines. The muscle releases hormones. We call them myokines. And by the way, there's a lot of crossover between these things. And so the best way I like to describe this to remember is think of it as a metabolic smoke in a sense. When you are working out and your muscles start to burn, this is where these myokines start being released. Uh, now, there's several different ways. I talk about the B's and the H's in exercise, breathless, burning, 
heavy in heat. And so breathlessness is correlated with the catecholamines. These are not mitokines. These are stress hormones mainly coming from the adrenal glands, right? However, burning and heavy, the straining in the muscle, when your muscles burn and your muscles are straining and you're putting tension on them, you will release myokines. And actually, it, the more you burn or you squeeze a muscle, the more you impede blood flow going out of a muscle. You can do that through squeezing or putting a tourniquet approximately to the muscle. To like blood flow restriction, right? Blood, like blood flow restriction. Exactly. Yeah. What you're doing is you're localizing all these myokines. So when you contract your muscles, these chemicals are released. And they go by names like IL-6, IL-15, IL-8, arisen, you know, all of these different compounds. My favorites are those three, IL-6, IL-8 and IL-15. IL-15, I call the Arnold molecule because it goes to the fat cells, say, hey, fat cells start burning a little bit more fat. It goes to the muscles, the local muscles and say, hey, grow a little bit more. IL-6 is a, goes to the brain and says, suppress hunger a little bit. IL-6 also ramps up fat burning. IL-8 helps us build more uh, blood vessels. Also things like nitric oxide and lactate. These can be considered myokines as well. They're not oftentimes talked about, but they also will do things like stimulate growth hormone release and do things like uh, increase mitochondrial biogenesis. And so this is this whole chemical soup. And I call it metabolic smoke just because when your muscles start burning, you can imagine smoke coming off the muscle. You can also say, oh, my, mu my muscles are probably releasing a lot of these myokines. And they're associated with mainly intensity of work. There's a, there's a very correlation between how intense you're working, how heavy the weights are, how much your muscles are burning or how hard you're squeezing them. Um, the pump, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about this. The pump is highly correlative of, you know, these myokine releases. And what they are doing is they are essentially going around the body and saying, hey, look, our machinery is under stress. We need to burn fat. We need to build muscle. We need to amplify immune uh, cells. We need to do a lot of different things to help us get through this bout of exercise, to help us repair, to help us recover, and to help us adapt. And by the way, that's what they're doing, right? So they are this whole messenger system that is helping us recover, repair, and adapt. And this is why resistance training is so powerful, by the way. If you go for a run, you will release some of these things, mainly IL-6, but you'll get very little IL-15 and not a whole lot of IL-8 or some of these other ones. When you do resistance training, you're getting IL-6, you're getting IL-15, you're getting IL-8, you're getting nitric oxide, you're getting lactate, you're getting a bunch of others. And why is that important? Because that is sort of the holy grail of what we're all trying to do. They all together basically say, burn fat, build muscle, be more resilient, be stronger. And they have effects on uh, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor and you know uh, the, the idea of like stimulating the brain to be more plastic and, and make more connections. And so they have huge ramifications for healthcare across the board. And we are just now starting to learn about them. Although my first paper I wrote on this was probably back in 2005, 2005, wow. 2006. I actually wrote for the textbook of natural medicine. I did a whole chapter on myokines. Now, of course, since then, the, the whole science has exploded. And then just one thing I'll say, I don't know how many uh, people are interested in this because I, you know, my, my audience is usually a lot of professionals, but what's really interesting is IL-6 is considered a inflammatory cytokine that the immune system uses. But when it's released from the muscle, it actually is anti-inflammatory because IL-6 stimulates IL-10, which is an immunoglobulin that is anti-inflammatory when it comes from the muscle. Because when it comes from the muscle, IL-6, 
It doesn't come along with another compound called TNF. These myokines are also anti-inflammatory when they come from the muscle, whatever that mix is that is coming from muscle versus the immune system, because a lot of these same compounds are shared. The muscle releases IL-6 without TNF and with all these other compounds that make it anti-inflammatory, which is just fascinating that you can program your immune system, repair your brain, burn fat, build muscle just from getting these myokines released. And they really do come from movement. And the more intense the movement, the better, which you know does give you a catch-22, as you were talking about, Emily, because the more intense you go, the shorter those bouts better be. Yeah. I love that. It literally gives the pathway of why exercise is inflammatory as well as anti-inflammatory. hundred percent. Yeah. So, and if yeah. you interfere with that, right, that's why, you know, we see research on you take a bunch of antioxidants and you take a bunch of cold therapy and stuff like that in and around exercise, you can actually do some negative impact for muscle gain because the body needs this balance and moving the muscle is incredibly uh, anti-inflammatory. It's, 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 you know, that old saying back in the day, you know, when my, me and my brother were first writing research papers back in, you know, early 2000s, it's like exercise is medicine. That was a big movement. Now that's a cliche term. Everybody knows that, but this is one of the reasons why these myokines. Muscle is also considered a glucose sink, right? One of the largest sites for glucose metabolism. Can you share for women who don't know what that means? What does that mean? And why is it important, especially for the Hashi ladies? Yeah. Hugely important because here's what's really interesting, right? So when you're dealing with thyroid issues, thyroid hormone also has a lot to do with um, insulin and glucose management, right? And so uh, just some basic biochemistry for people who aren't familiar with this. Insulin is released whenever you eat carbohydrates and proteins. Um, and depending on the person, by the way, proteins can stimulate insulin just as much, if not more. The difference is there's the, the difference is that it's different to have high insulin with high amino, blood amino acids versus high insulin with high blood sugars. However, and, and in order to get glucose into the muscle and amino acids into the muscle, you need insulin, except there is one way that you can do this without insulin, and that is moving your body. So as you move your body, insulin stimulates the GLUT4 receptors that pull glucose into the cells. Guess what else does that? Just movement. So movement and exercise is an independent way to translocate these glucose, these GLUT4 receptors onto each cell to pull glucose into the body without insulin. Now, why is that important? Because for someone who's got Hashimoto's or thyroid issues, they're already having issues with this and they're probably already becoming insulin, slightly insulin resistant. And so what happens is they need more and more insulin to get these GLUT receptors up. That insulin can lead to hunger issues, craving issues, fat storage, et cetera, making achieving a calorie deficit very difficult. Once you start moving, you can get the glucose in without insulin and begin lowering that insulin. And the simplest way to do this is really walking for a lot of us with Hashimoto's, but also uh, there's something really interesting about resistance training that a lot of people don't realize. Resistance training changes genes in the liver that actually adjust glycogen synthesis and gluconeogenesis in the liver to help with some of the negative effects of insulin resistance. And so cardiovascular exercise doesn't do that. What's really interesting is resistance training does. And so there's another independent mechanism of resistance training, not just for increasing insulin sensitivity at the level of the muscle, but also at the level of the liver. So both matter. That's why walking plus resistance training uh, are beautiful because neither one is going to really overtax you and they're taking advantage of these myokines and they're taking advantage of this independent 
uh, GLUT4 receptor modification just through movement without insulin. And I hope that's not too complex for everybody and made sense. But No, that was beautifully said. Way better said than I could ever spit it out. Thank you for that. How do you get your women who have Hashimoto's who, you know, you want them to get the burn, right? The B's and the H's, mm-hmm. but some of them are a little resistant due to, oh, I want to, I don't want to overtax my adrenals. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of guide them to get to that place of getting the burn, building the resilience, you know, secreting the myokines? Yeah. Well, well, here's one thing, one way to think about it. So let's, let's say you've, uh, you you've injured your knees and you've decided you're not going to squat, right? And this is your 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 area of expertise now, Emily. It's the same thing, right? If you decide I'm not going to squat, what's going to happen to your knees? They're just going to get weaker and weaker and weaker, and you're going to be less likely to ever be able to squat. So you have to squat. You're going to have to figure out a way to begin to do that. Now you get someone like Emily could teach you the right ways to do those things, but it's the same thing, uh, sort of the the other way around here. What you have to understand is that uh, by not doing you know, uh, the stuff, you are actually making yourself weaker. So when it comes to cortisol and adrenal fatigue and things like that, if you do nothing, right? Like if you don't you know, squat in this analogy, if you do nothing, you don't work out because you're so tired, you're just gonna get more and more tired. You have to build the resilience back in your body. And Emily and I, had, I know I've talked a lot about her work uh, with a previous conversation. So both of us, what we do is we exercise and have you exercise in a way that allows us to stress the system just enough, but not too much to make things worse. And this is where you kind of go heart rate recovery during the workouts. Emily gives nice long rests. So do I. The workouts tend to be short. You can look at HRV uh, between uh, heart rate variability between workouts. And then if you have none of those tools, just schmeck in check once again, does it? Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings. If that is not getting worse and or getting better, meaning that sleep is a good, you're sleeping eight hours, you're sleeping through the night, hunger is not an issue, it's under control. It's not that you don't have it, it's just you control it. You're not binging on cheesecakes and burgers and stuff like that. Cravings, same things, and energy is becoming more stable or better, then you know your workout's working for you. Um, but there's no choice you have to work out just like you have to squat. Like I always tell people, like you're going to sit down and go to the bathroom. You're going to have to sit down and stand up. These are squats. Like you're going to have to also with chronic fatigue and adrenal stuff, you're going to, in order to get the adrenal system healthy and better, you're going to have to stimulate it to some degree. You're going to have to exercise it to some degree. Well, I think a common recommendation that I've been noticing a trend in is like, okay, don't do too much. Just do some stretching. Don't overdo it. And it's like, okay, well, when does that person get to a point from a certain provider's perspective where they can start to push themselves mm-hmm. a little bit or just load the muscle tissue? And so I think it's this kind of, um, you know, conventional medicines like, hey, move more, eat less. And then sometimes in the functional medicine world, it's don't overdo it. Don't overtax the adrenals. And I think there's this Goldilocks spot, but I think some providers are recommending not doing too much. And mm-hmm. I think it's a disservice to the women because yeah i think the reason i think the reason where you and i see this uh and this is just education it's not bashing any practitioners because we're no. all just different but most practitioners simply don't have the exercise training and understanting that that me and you do emily that, that's just the, the fact of the matter and that includes many functional medicine docs and so you know um they just don't understand that it's, it can be overdone or you know underdone and so to me, yes, the whole metabolism works by the Goldilocks principle. And here it is a mistake 
to just eat less and exercise more. And it is a mistake to do nothing. Um, and this is where, you know, you and I, this is our bread and butter like th this. And this is powerful. When you have a practitioner like Emily, like myself, like others who understand the nuances of this, this is the reason why they're so effective. Like this is the what reason why Emily's so effective in what she does with Hashimoto's because you understand this Goldilocks principle. And you also understand from your own training, from working with thousands of people, you know, like it's, it's just that, I mean, honestly, I would say 99% of practitioners don't have this training and that's not bashing them. It's just because um, people like you and I, you know, this was training we did on our own. Like I started personal training at 15 years old. I still make most of my money through guided online workouts. You know, it's just it, that, and people go, well, that's interesting. You're a doctor. Like, why do you still do that? I'm like, because it's the most powerful medicine period. Like, you know, so if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm a clinician who's serving patients and I'm not using the most powerful medicine we have available to us, then something's wrong there. But not most people don't get that training. They just don't. I want to talk about fatigue and Hashimoto's because that is, you know, one of the two biggest symptoms is mm. difficulty losing weight and this extreme fatigue mm. more than probably the average person could imagine. I would mm. compare it to probably worse than first trimester pregnancy. <laughs> and oftentimes when we're talking about fatigue, there is conversation around supporting the mitochondria. And I know there is a supplement that is out there that seems newer, but has actually been researched, I think, for the last 20 years, urolithin A. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how that helps with mitochondrial health, mitochondrial autophagy? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So the mitochondria are basically the little energy factories in every cell. It, they're way more than that, though. So I'm, I'm saying that because that's how everyone knows them. And they're way more than that. So actually mitochondria make our hormones. They are direct contact with the sarcoplasmic reticulum and other, other things in the cytoplasm that make hormones and uh, do all this work despite uh, making energy. The other thing that's really amazing about them is we think, and this, hopefully I won't confuse people here, but we think mitochondria, the evolution of the mitochondria, those little energy factories in every cell came from bacteria that uh, we included it somewhere down the line, way back in evolution, got incorporated into uh, other cells. And so now our cells use these mitochondria. They look like bacteria, these mitochondria, and they are what make our energy. Now, what we're starting to see is they don't just look like mitochondria or um, bacteria, rather. They actually function a lot like bacteria. In other words, they secrete signaling compounds the same way muscles do, and they pick up signaling compounds. And guess where they're picking up some of these signaling compounds from? The bacteria that live in our gut. One thing to know about bacteria is bacteria communicate with each other. Um, they, uh, they oftentimes communicate across species too. So a bacterial population that is under stress will tell other bacteria like it. A bacteria that's under stress will tell the other similar bacteria like it through secreting compounds that, hey, this is a stressful situation. And then they'll all do some certain things together. They'll create biofilms. They'll you know, um, share respiration, they'll share resources and things like this. Now, when our gut bacteria are growing, they also secrete compounds. And what they do is they digest certain compounds we have. So when we eat, in the case of urolithin A, which I'll, I'll get to here in a minute, when we eat fruits, uh, mainly the pomegranate, they have this in, there's certain polyphenols in these fruits that then go into our gut that then get uh, digested by our uh, bacteria that then create compounds like urolithin A, that then get absorbed into our system, that then find our, their ways into the cells 
and then find their way to the mitochondria and communicate to the mitochondria, hey, you need to be more uh, functional. And you can find what ends up happening is mitochondria start to repair themselves and or they recycle old damaged mitochondria. They do more mitochondrial fusion, which a lot of people, when they, if you've ever looked at a mitochondria, it looks like this little bug inside the cell. That's not how functional healthy mitochondria actually look. Healthy mitochondria are actually a conglomeration. They look like a, a, a blob because they all start fusing. They call it mitochondrial fusion. And when they all start fusion, fusing, they can create much more energy. So unhealthy mitochondria are off by themselves. Healthy mitochondria are in these colonies like bacteria. Urolithin A uh, may be pushing us more towards fused mitochondria and may be helping us do uh, what Emily said, mito mitochondrial autophagy, which is essentially recycling of the mitochondria, taking damaged mitochondria. For those of you who don't know mitochondria, let me give you just an image. Think of a clean power plant, you know, a hydroelectric plant that's spewing off steam. This would be a healthy mitochondria. Now think of a coal plant, with this dirty smoke going into the atmosphere. That would be a damaged mitochondria. What urolithin A does is it essentially says, hey, these damaged mitochondria, they're spewing smoke. Let's get rid of them. Let's recycle them. And also it might be having an impact on mitochondrial fusion. This actually, by the way, trust me when, you know, um, Emily and I probably read enough research to know urolithin A isn't the only one. Uh, there's probably lots of polyphenols that we are eating, which, which speaks to plant foods uh, being incredibly important and may speak to why plant foods are uh, so impactful. Now, of course, plant foods have other things in them, lectins and other things that can be problematic for people, but these polyphenols are hugely powerful. So urolithin A is just a compound that has been studied because they discovered that our bacteria are making this from polyphenols, and they also discovered it's having very beneficial effects on mitochondria. And so they started to give it as a supplement. And to be honest, it's relatively new as a supplement. So I can't tell you exactly. And there's not a whole lot of double-blind placebo-controlled studies on this, by the way, either in terms of, hey, take the supplement and you just feel a whole lot better. However, it is a very promising uh, avenue uh, to look at. The, the, the take-home for all of you listening to this conversation right now is that the mitochondria are absolutely critical if you're ever going to get better feel better, you know, look better, function better, live longer. It all comes down um, to the mitochondria. And one thing, we'll go back to the myo myokines again. One of the best things to do for mitochondria, even better than urolithin A, again, is movement because nitric oxide and a lactic acid, lactate, actually are do the same thing. They, they increase mitochondrial biogenesis. They basically say, hey, let's make more mitochondria. And they also cause more uh, exercise, causes these mitochondria to fuse more. And so, yes, you know, these supplements like urolithin A can be really powerful. And I certainly take it, recommend it. Actually, they're a sponsor of my podcast. Um, it's a phenomenal compound. Uh, but you still have to do all the other, the other things here. But to your point, Emily, you better be uh, paying attention to mitochondrial function if you want to deal with uh, Hashimoto's and thyroid conditions. Can you test mitochondrial function? Is there a way to test it? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I, I'm not aware of it. I know there are tests that do it. I'm not aware that any of them have really been uh, validated. Uh, maybe you have some different uh, information. But for me, I go, um, when I look at mitochondria, again, I'm not, to, not to sound like, uh, you know, a broken record, but to me, I go, your metabolism is going to tell you, as your mitochondria start to repair, you're going to start having better energy. You know, hunger is going to be less. Cravings are going to be less. Sleep's going to be better, right? Mood's going to be better. Exercise performance and exercise recovery are going to be better. So 
from my perspective, the best way to know that you're moving in the right direction is how you feel. And then also body composition changes, right? Like, you know, we all know, all of us with thyroid issues, we know that this can be a huge thing. Water fluctuations, like that's the other thing. Like a lot of what happens with us is not just fat. It's just the accumulation of water, water weight. Uh, thyroid has a lot to do with sodium potassium pumps and mitochondria and glucose and all this kind of stuff. And then finally, blood labs, you know, are the antibodies getting better? Are the thyroid hormones uh, getting better? One thing I will say, though, in, in terms of labs, and this isn't about mitochondria, that this is something that, again, most doctors, most practitioners are not even aware of. What a lot of people don't know is that we tend to think when we think of my, uh, thyroid function, we think the thyroid hormones leave the cell. They get, you know, you know, mainly T4. It gets converted into T3 in, in these different tissues. And then it feeds back to the brain. And that's all we think about. What we don't realize is that every single cell in the body and tissue regulates its own thyroid function. And so what's really sad and frustrating about working with thyroid is that you can have completely normal thyroid values and you can have cellular thyroid dysfunction. And most of us with Hashimoto's and autoimmune conditions and many who don't are dealing with this issue. And the only way to assess that right now is to get the reverse T3, T3, free, uh, free T3 ratio. And a lot of doctors won't even run reverse T3. They'll say it's useless. I run it on, on everyone. So yes, it's Schmeck and check. Yes, it's body composition attaining and maintaining. And then it's knowing which blood labs to run. I certainly wouldn't at this point be running mitochondrial function stuff. Some, some specialty labs, if they hear this, might be mad at that. Maybe it's just because I'm ignorant to it. But I definitely think you want to be running full thyroid panels and then using those numbers just to guide the way you feel and your body comp, if that makes sense. I know we're wrapping up, but can you just speak to that free T3, reverse T3 ratio mm -hmm. and why yeah, it's important? So, yeah. So here, here's the interesting thing. So your cells, what happens is when that thyroid hormone goes to the cell, the cell essentially goes, all right, how, how much uh, thyroid hormone am I going to let in? So inside the cell, it is looking at T4 versus T3, okay? And if it feels like it is overly, uh, it has too much thyroid or not enough thyroid, what it will begin to do is it'll begin to use up those resources pretty damn fast. And or it will say, and here's the biggest thing is, and this is counterintuitive for a lot of people, it will say, you know, if you have a dysfunctional cell, a lot of people say it's not going to speed up its metabolism. It's usually going to slow its metabolism down. It's going to start to conserve. Same way we would if we were starving, right? So a dysfunctional cell usually slows down thyroid usage. What happens in the cell is T3 gets used a lot, right? T4 gets, but T4 starts to not get used, get converted as much, and less T4 gets into the cell. And also uh, reverse T3 uh, goes up in proportion to the way T4 goes up outside of the cell. And so if you look at free T3, right, the amount that would be getting into the cell and look at reverse T3, which is correlated to, uh, you know, resistance to thyroid hormone, you can get a number uh, that most people say less than 20, right? Um, depending if you get total T3, T3 or uh, free T3, it's either 0.2 or 20. Uh, but ultimately this number will tell you if you have cellular uh, hypothyroid. Now, you might say, what does that matter, Jade? What that matters is that that goes to the discussion of what Emily was saying. That is probably a better indicator for those of us suffering from thyroid stuff of mitochondrial dysfunction. 
Hopefully that made sense because as the mitochondria become dysfunctional and the cell becomes compromised, the body doesn't go, hey, let's speed it up. It goes, let's slow it down. And the first energy decrements are going to happen in the mitochondria. So then the cell goes, less, t you know, less uh, usage of T4, less conversion, uh, take less thyroid in. We've got some issues here. And then you start seeing that cellular hypothyroid, but it started with the mitochondria. So that reverse T3 to free T3, those two numbers, I think are a better way to measure mitochondrial function in uh, people with thyroid uh, issues. That's what I run on myself. That's what I run on all of them to assess mitochondrial function. And that's what I do. If I see that number, it, I go, okay, this is probably mitochondrial. And then I might think more urolithin A or alpha lipoic acid, CoQ10, um, you know, myo-inositol, um, uh, NADH, all these compounds that are really, you know, working to uh, more whey protein if they're tolerant to it. That's a tricky thing with thyroid because a lot of people are intolerant to dairy, but I like whey protein if they're tolerant to it because it really raises glutathione, which you need uh, those antioxidants around dysfunctional mitochondria. And so I know I'm, you know, maybe getting too complicated and too complex here, but hopefully that um, explains uh, a little bit about why these extra numbers uh, in laboratory reports are probably going to tell you some of the things you need. You need to assess mitochondrial function. You asked about, is there a way to assess it? To me, that's the best way to assess it because it's using thyroid to assess it. Jade, so, so good. Thank you so much. Is that good? For, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your wealth cool. of knowledge that you've mm. put together over, what, 20 years, 25 years? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, been, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? Thank you to you, too, for your work. I'm just so impressed with what you're doing and really happy that we, you and I got a chance to meet and, and connect and discuss our work. Yeah, thank you. Where can people find you? So I'm at Jade Tita on all the social. I know we're all hanging out on social now. That's the world we live in. So <laughs> at Jade, like the stone, J-A-D-E-T-E-T-A. -E -E um, and then jadetita.com. And then also uh, I have a podcast as well called the Next Level Human Podcast, which Emily was on with me and her episode just got released uh, recently. And so yeah, Next Level Human Podcast, jadetita.com and at Jade Tita. Yeah. And if people want to check out your programs and work with you mm -hmm. more intimately. Yeah. You know, I'm not currently taking patients or clients. I've got a lot of business stuff, but I have lots of free program on my site. If you go to jtita.com, I believe I still have my free thyroid uh, program there. I have a metabolic rehab program there that has a lot to do with that. And I have an autoimmune program there and they're all free. These are all courses I used to sell. And now I just make them free because, you know, my business has kind of moved in a different direction. So they're all there for you, um, these programs. So definitely, I can't probably work with you one-on-one -on -one right now, um, but those programs are available to you. And if you get on my list, I do take patients from time to time. I'll open up a block uh, of, uh, and things are changing with my business here. So yeah, if you want to work with me, just get in touch, support at jtita.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you so much. Yeah.